This is a fresh agenda. Conversations to connect your productivity and creativity and generate your deepest work. Here is your host, Christina Mendonza. This is a fresh agenda where we chat with innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. I'm Christina Mendonca. Glad to have you here in this tiny part of the podcast universe. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please check out my other episodes. Subscribe, share, rate if you have the time. I'd be so appreciative. This is purely a passion project for me, but it is the one place where I have complete editorial control. So I bring on people I'm interested in. And when you stop by, I'm glad they're interesting to you too. My guest today is novelist, former New York Times reporter, and of late, COVID contrarian Alex Berenson. Now, Berenson has written 13 novels, seven nonfiction works, and his latest is called The Power Couple. It's a spy mystery. And we're going to get into his methods for switching between fiction and nonfiction. We're going to discuss the state of journalism a bit, the cancel culture, and all the Twitter arguments he's been having on the daily when he presents studies that go against the current COVID narrative. First, have you heard of Clubhouse? I've been checking it out of late, so this is not an ad. It's an audio app. It's a social platform which consists of virtual rooms. A friend urged me to hop on, and I admit I'm fascinated, but the jury's out. You can hop into any room with entrepreneurs and listen while you work out or do laundry. There's never uh, a a never-ending list of topics. So you go on once you're on. It's an invite-only app, so someone has to invite you. You can pick a list of topics that you're interested in, and then they put you in kind of a virtual hallway, and there are different rooms you can go into. And inside those rooms, a bunch of people talking about the topic. That is what the room is named after. You can even raise your hand. You can ask a question. So I've been on it for about a week. So far, my favorite room featured Les Brown, motivational speaker Les Brown. But Elon Musk stops in regularly, Oprah, and you never know who you might get to hear. There are also conversations that go nowhere. (laughs) And that's happened to me, too. So the jury's out for me. I have yet to hear something that brought real value to my life with my specific set of circumstances in my business, but you can host a room as well. So maybe I'll do that and see if I can get some people to stop by. But, you know, you might want to check it out if someone invites you. It's a different way uh, to be social and maybe make some connections and even globally because the rooms are going 24-7. Now, before we get to our interview, I want to chat briefly about the number of people I'm seeing switching careers. This pandemic has been such a reset for a lot of people. And I read the broadcasting trades each morning when I get into work. And the number of anchors and reporters and journalists getting out to sell real estate or start their own companies, it's been stunning to me over the past few months. Um, A market I used to work in, Denver, there have been like three or four that all of a sudden have said, I'm done. I'm out of the business. Ten years ago, you would have never heard of anyone in broadcasting leaving voluntarily, that is, to choose something else. That tells me there are changes in that industry that maybe make it less attractive for some people. My guest, Alex Berenson, can speak to that as a former investigative reporter for the New York Times. We're going to talk about what has changed in journalism. First, besides a great interview, I always want to offer something of value. So today I have four things to consider if you are thinking about a career switch. 
Now, these are from a blog I read called Fairy God Boss, which is actually a great blog for you to subscribe to if you are a woman in business. There are opportunities there to offer value and get advice from people in your industry. But these four things, they apply, man, woman, doesn't matter. Um, How you know when it's uh, time to make a career change. Four steps to assess. First, assess your passions. Part of the assessment process will include self-reflection of what parts of your job you enjoy, as well as what parts of the job you don't like. Knowing your work satisfiers will help you determine what type of work you enjoy doing. And there are free assessments available. Uh, Tony Robbins has one, Indeed.com and JobHunt.org. Next thing you want to do, assess your skills. If you're unhappy at work, you want to make the move, uh, take a closer look at your transferable skills. Uh, the Job Scan Career Change Tool, it's just uh, Job Scan, can analyze your resume and match your skills to possible other careers. It's just a tool you can consider using. Number three, update your marketing materials. You're going to need to update your resume. Don't forget about your LinkedIn profile with all of your transferable skills. Your resume will need to be applicant tracking system friendly, an ATS system. Um, If you haven't looked for a job for a while, the ATS system kind of scans, pre-scans your resume before it sends it on to the proper person. Um, So a couple of things uh, to keep in mind as you redo your resume. Uh, You don't have any graphics, tables, or headers, or fancy fonts. Keep it to one font, no smaller than 10-point to 12-point, which is actually better. Update your LinkedIn profile to include a professional-looking photo. Customize your LinkedIn URL. Include your email address, address, skills about your uh, uh, statement. List 50 skills and then start to grow your network. That's going to be uh, super powerful. LinkedIn is a, a great way to investigate other careers that you might be interested in. And the next is network, right? The key to any job search is really connecting with others. What do they say? It's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, it's what you know, too. But it is also who you know. So reach out to your network. Let them know that you are looking for a change. There are people in your network who are natural connectors, Um That's what I am. I'm a connector. I love to connect people to other people or information that they need. And you have some of those people in your life, too. So if you're not a connector, reach out to the connectors in your network and let them help you uh, connect to an opportunity or a person or, uh, you know, get you on the road to your career change. So those are four things that you can do to assess whether or not you're ready to jump careers and, and move on to something else. Okay, let's get into our interview now with Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, spent 10 years there. He's written 13 novels, seven nonfiction books, entrepreneurial journalist and COVID contrarian. Alex Berenson joins me now. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. Um, have a taken a look at your, your book, The Power Couple. Looking forward to getting into it more. What is it about journalism that you think makes a good novelist? Um, well, I think uh, as a journalist, you can, you know, you're, you're trained to observe the world. Obviously, you people write a lot. Uh, you know, I, you, you learn as a journalist, I'd say, um, that that, that, that sometimes you just have to write. Sometimes you have to stop thinking and planning and, you know, obsessing over your art and you just have to sit down and write a thousand words that day and be done with it. Um, and I think, I think that, uh, you know, for commercial, more commercial novelists, more genre novelists, um, there's a reason why a lot of them are former journalists, which is, 
you don't get, you know, you don't necessarily get that fussy and obsess over a single sentence for six hours. You, you, you write and, you know, you try to tell a good story, tell it cleanly, and you move on to the next part of the story. And, uh, you know, I think I think sometimes people who consider themselves, you know, more literary writers don't aren't very good at doing that. And so, as a as a you know, uh, as a writer, I've always prided myself on writing clearly and cleanly, and you know, with action and telling a story that people can really get into. And I think that's something journalism can teach you. Uh, this is, by my count, your thirteenth novel. Yes. Your fir- your first not featuring John Wells, uh, a recurring character. Uh, are you going to go back eventually and do more with John Wells? Uh, I mean, I think I owe people at least one more Wells novel in that, you know, there's people who've spent you know, 12 books. If you've read all 12, uh, you, you know, you put real time into them. Uh, and, and he's been a part of my life for a long time. So I think I need at least one more book that sort of at least wraps up the, the, the Wells story. Um, and when, when I'll write that, I don't know. I, I mean, I didn't intend Wells to be a serious character, uh, a serious character. Um, the first Wells novel actually ended without an epilogue. Um, and so the implication actually at the end of that book was that he had died. And my uh, editor at the time said, don't do that. He's a really great character. You're going to regret it if you do that. And if you're going to do it, you have to at least have a funeral or something to make it clear that he died. And I found I couldn't do that. So I wrote an epilogue where he actually um, wakes up after you know, he's been shot and he, he comes to. And that turned out to be a really good decision from my point of view, both artistically and commercially, because people really did like Wells. And I wound up writing uh, 12 of these books um, I do feel like, you know, his life, like his life as a spy and as a secret agent is, um, you know, is nearly done. And so uh, I don't think there'll be 12 more Wells novels, but I do think I owe people something else. But but it was a great pleasure to write The Power Couple and to write a book that was not, um, you know, not about John Wells and had a new world. And, uh, you know, the main character in this book, two of the three main characters and the lead character uh, they're women. And so Wells is very much a stereotypical, uh, you know, kind of man on a cowboy, man on a horse. Uh, you know, he's like, he, in some ways, I, I imagined him as this cowboy, this Western character when I was writing him. And, th- and this is a much more nuanced book about a marriage and the secrets in a marriage. And but there is, you know, there, 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 there's a there's a strong thriller element to it. But uh, but it's a book I couldn't have written, I think, until without, without being married for a number of years. Right, right. It could be, so much is about the relationship between these two. So with the power couple, uh, you know, I know people come up with characters different ways. A lot of times they're an amalgamation of, of people that they've met. Um, is there anyone that the power couple will remind us of? <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I, uh, my joke at the end is this is not this is not my marriage, and uh, you know, uh, Rebecca is not my wife, and I'm not Brian. Um, <laughs> uh, fortunately, as you'll see, you know, this is not my marriage. By the time you get to the end of it, because they have a very you know difficult marriage in some ways. Um, you know, they're again, they're both in the secret keeping business, and so uh, so I think I think you can be somebody sometimes where that creeps into your personal life too, and you get used to you know, not telling people the whole truth or sometimes not even very much of the truth. And that can creep into your personal life. You see it certainly with CIA operatives who a lot of whom wind up, um, you know, getting divorced or having, uh, you know, affairs. And, uh, you know, it's a complicated business being a spy. And, right. and these two are both in that business. So, 
Um, you know, is it you know, is it specifically somebody? No, it's parts of a lot of different people. I mean, both Rebecca and Brian. So, thirteen novels, seven nonfiction books. Uh, give me kind of a rundown of your schedule. Do you write at the same time every day? When are you most creative? What does your mise en place look like? So, so uh, you know, for the novels, which is what I did for a number of years, you know, I was writing the Wells novel. I was on a pretty I wouldn't say tight schedule, but a pretty regular schedule where I would write. Um, you know, I, I generally write in the in the early afternoons. I would say I try to write in the mornings because if I wrote in the mornings, if I got my thousand words in, then I could do something else the rest of the day. But that never quite happened. Um, you know, the only person in the world who seems to be able to just sit down and write whenever he wants is Stephen King. The rest of us have to suffer <laughs> a little bit. Um, and so, you know, I always try to write a thousand words a day, and then I try to edit. And, uh, you know, it usually took me six, seven, eight months to write a book. Um, you know, a book is about 100 or 120,000 words. But, you know, with the editing and other stuff, you're not really writing a thousand words a day. And then it was time to think about the next Wells novel. And that usually took me a couple months to sort of figure out. And then I started to start writing again. The last few years, my schedule has been very different because I did write a nonfiction book called Tell Your Children. Um, then I wrote The Power Couple, which I actually finished in 2019, even though it's just coming out now. And in the last year, you know, I've been very focused on COVID, and I've sort of taken this, um, I guess you'd say, contrarian position that uh, that the lockdowns um, and the masking and some of the other stuff we've done really doesn't make that much sense, that we've really hurt our schools and our kids and our economy for very little reason, and that... Uh, you know, that, that, look, this is a serious disease, and unfortunately it is killing people, um, but that we can't turn over our society or our world for it, and we never would have done this. Um, we never would have done this before, in my opinion. Right. So, so that's, that's sort of taken over my life, and, um, and I haven't, you know, I haven't really been thinking about fiction very much the last year. At some point, I do want to get back to fiction because I do, I do, I don't love the process of it, but I love the result of it. It's nice to have a novel done. Um, and so I have to figure that out. The, the complexity for me, unfortunately, the power couple has been a little bit caught in the um, in my COVID stuff. In that people, I think there's a lot of people in the media who don't like me and don't like what I'm saying. I mean, I know this because they tell me that. And to some extent, they don't want anyone to know about this book. So this, so the power couple has gotten no reviews. You know, it's sort of got no profile attention in places like the New York Times or CNN that regularly reviewed the Wells novels. And, 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 and so I can only attribute that to people not wanting to do me any favors, which is fine, but, you know, it, it makes it a little bit harder for me uh, to get the news about this book out there. And, uh, you know, I just have to know that that's, that's the price I'm paying for trying to tell the truth or what I see as the truth about COVID. Right. I want to get into that uh, with you. Um, this, this whole um, notion of cancel culture uh, Twitter, of course, it's my least favorite platform. It's it's a sewer trench. It really is. Twitter is. But you spend a lot of time there. Do you like the fight? No, I, I don't really like the fight, per se. I, I, Twitter has provided me with a good audience. And, and Twitter has allowed me, you know, people keep saying, is Twitter going to, you know, de-platform you? Or are they going to cancel you? I try to be very careful about how I use Twitter. And I think I think sometimes people misunderstand that because I can be, you know, there's stuff I put on there that's a little bit satirical at times. It's not generally directed at specific people, but it is sort of directed in ge- at the overall notion that the, that the media has gone too far in, in COVID hysteria. But when I talk about specific things, for example, if I'm talking about masks or lockdowns, 
I point very carefully to specific studies, to, you know, to government data, to news articles from reputable places. I don't just spout stuff off because I am aware that there's a real risk of my being canceled. And I want to be there and because I want to be factually accurate. I'm a journalist. And, and, you know, that's how I use Twitter. And I agree with you. There's a lot of negative stuff on Twitter. And it's taken me a little while to figure out how to use it, I think, in a good way uh, and not to engage in endless arguments with people and certainly not to engage in endless arguments with people who have sort of no followers. There's no point to that. If you're engaging with somebody who has a million followers, for me, that's helpful because hopefully my point of view is getting out to those people. But just to just to fight with nobody is, is pointless and a waste of time. And to get a- angry is pointless and a waste of time. So there is, a, there is a way to use Twitter, but it's complicated. And in terms of cancel culture, yes, we have a real problem right now, which is that people who are standing outside the the mainstream um, are really being targeted. And, you know, you can, you can lose your job for using a word that, you know, that you shouldn't use. You can, you can, um, you know, have a hard time in, in my case, getting publicity for a book that has nothing to do with my opinions about COVID. Um, there are, there are, there are constant, you listen, James Bennett at the New York times a few months ago, he was the opinion editor of that newspaper. He lost his job, not for using a word, not for anything he had done, but because his section ran an op-ed that people didn't like. I mean, I think that's a very dangerous place to go. You know, McClanker and I talk a lot about how journalism has changed. Um, I just, I don't know if you've read it. I've, I read Matt Taibbi's uh, book, Hate Incorporated, and feel it could be written by a lot of journalists, particularly those that were more classically trained. What disturbs you the most about what has changed in journalism? I mean, you came from the New York Times. I, what disturbs me the most is, so look, the Times has always been a little bit of a left-leaning place. It was a left-leaning place when I was there, and I was fine with that. I mean, most of the stories I did, you'd say were basically, I mean, I was a corporate investigative reporter in general. I took on big business. I, I wrote a lot about drug companies and problems that they, you know, if they hadn't told the truth about their drugs and marketing them and stuff like that. No one's going to say I'm a corporate shill. But, but when I worked at the Times, and I worked there for 10 years, and I believe this about journalism, the mission of journalism is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. When we went out, if we were investigating people, if we were asking hard questions of a politician or a sports figure or anybody, okay, it didn't really matter whether that person was a Republican or a Democrat. We were going to ask hard questions. We were also going to try to write about them fairly, and if they had something to say in their own defense— we would put it in a story, even if we disagreed with it or thought it might not be true, and we'd let readers judge. That ethos seems to be out the window. First of all, there's one set of rules for Democrats and another set for Republicans. That's pretty explicit. And second of all, there's this idea that you can be nasty to people in print. You can be nasty to people on Twitter, the subjects that you're covering, and they're just sort of supposed to take it. And to me, that's a big mistake. And and I, and I understand that the Times got very frustrated covering Donald Trump because people felt he lied a lot. And, and, you know, and there were definitely cases where you could point to stuff that he'd said that was factually untrue. But, but to put yourself in open opposition to one political party, I think, is a dangerous move. And it's something that a lot of people who consider themselves centrists have done now in the last few years. And I don't know how we back off. Right. You know, you've posted numerous studies that go against, like, the current narrative on COVID. 
I want to know what motivates you to continue to dig up this information. Was it an event that made you feel, I have to find the other side? Was it your reporter training? Was it reaction that you um, saw from your own children or family members in fear of this? What motivates you to do this? Um, a little bit of all of the above, but mainly just my own feeling that the, that the full story needs to be told. Um, and that, and that, you know, when 99.9% of sort of the non, uh, you know, Fox slash conservative media are saying one thing, it's valuable to have somebody who's not part of that trying to point other stuff out. Um, so, so, you know, it is my journalism training. I also believe, and I saw this with my kids last spring that, you know, remote schooling of all the stuff we can argue about the thing, the thing that is the least valuable and is the, is the worst, uh, you know, is sort of the least is the thing that we should change immediately is schooling. Okay. Kids should be back in school K through 12 everywhere in the United States. That should happen today. It should have happened six months ago. We are punishing our children for really no reason at all. And, and so seeing how poorly my kids did online last year is part of the reason that I'm frustrated but, but mainly it's because I just feel like there are a lot of journalists out there who aren't telling the truth right now, whether that's because they don't understand the science, they haven't bothered to read the studies, whether it's because they're scared, whether it's ideology, I don't know. But as a journalist, it really frustrates and sickens me. Tell me what you do um, in your day-to-day to kind of replenish your creativity. You're doing a lot of different things. I mean, nonfiction and fiction and, and um, your independent journalism and all the research you're doing. And it seems like every time I'm on Twitter, you're on Twitter. So what do you do to kind of replenish that creativity? Right now, I'm not doing much. I mean, I mean I've really stopped with, the, with any sort of novel. Uh, create. I mean, that, that well is dry right now. And I'm going to have to figure out, you know, if I'm going to have to take a break from Twitter to replenish it. Um, you know, in terms of the, the, the nonfiction, I mean, I'm just very engaged. I'm engaged in trying to get the truth out. And, and I get tons of email from people. It's so interesting. If you saw me, if you just follow me on Twitter, you probably think, oh, you know, everybody hates this guy. Like all these people with these big followings, they have terrible things to say about him. My emails run, I don't know, 99 to 1, people telling me, keep fighting, like you're speaking for people who don't have a voice. You helped me understand this, and I'm less afraid of it now. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm not saying every email is like that, but but the vast majority are in that camp, and that that does help me fight. Let's bring this back around to uh, the power couple. Without giving away anything too significant, tell me a portion of the book, a scene, something that you really enjoyed writing, something you look back on now that you're like, oh, that was one of my favorite places to, to, to write. Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, so the book features this, this uh, you know, wife and husband, really, Rebecca and Brian, and she's an FBI agent. She's, and she's sort of more driven than Brian. Um, and they have a child, uh, they have two kids, but their, their daughter, Kira, is kidnapped fairly early on in the book. And you actually see a lot from Kira's point of view. Kira's not just some passive um, you know, wallflower waiting to get saved. She's trying to figure out how to get herself out of this mess, too. But one of the things, one of the things that I really enjoyed in the book um, is uh, is Rebecca. Uh, you see her sort of backstory as an FBI agent. One of the cool things about writing a novel is you can, you know, it can be set over over a one day period or it can be set over a twenty year period. And this book is sort of both because the kidnapping happens in real time over a couple of days. But you also see Rebecca and Brian's backstory and how they came together as a couple and, you know, the secrets that accumulated along the way. 
And one of the scenes is Rebecca in um, in Alabama uh, as an FBI agent. So her first big assignment, she goes undercover to try to set up um, a real estate developer who's corrupt. And she get and you know you see her driving uh, uh, down the interstate with this guy in her car, and how she essentially convinces him that she's that she's like him, that he should trust her, that she's a grifter too. And, um, you know, the ways, and it's not, you know, it's not a big scene. It's not actually relevant in to the, to the, to the kidnapping at all. It happens years and years before the kidnapping, but it's, it's, it's you getting inside her head and seeing the, you know, the lies that people tell, uh, you know, in, in the service of good, right? Because she really does want to bring this guy down because, you know, he's, he's cheating and lying and stealing. Um, and so to me, how she manages that and the and and literally the role that her driving plays in that um is a scene that i really enjoyed writing wonderful alex berenson thank you so much for your time we so appreciate you uh spending it with us and uh, good luck with the power couple thanks thanks for having me and um you know if if tra- if, we, if i can ever start to travel easily again and go on book tour again which is something i wanted to do for the power couple and couldn't when I, when I get out to the Bay Area, I will definitely let you know. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Alex Berenson. You can find his book, The Power Couple, on Amazon and wherever books are sold. I'm going to get the audio version myself. That's the way I like to consume media. Let me just say thank you for the continued support and encouragement as we march ahead with a fresh agenda into 2021. We are closing in on our first 100 episodes. And hearing from those of you enjoying the podcast just makes my day. So please subscribe, rate, share, tell all your friends about A Fresh Agenda, and check out my other episodes. I've got some fun conversations that will add not only value to your life, but, uh, you know, get you through that workout, get you through that laundry. (laughs) Thanks for being here. I'm Christina Mendonca. This has been A Fresh Agenda. Let's stay connected. This is A Fresh Agenda. Bringing your productivity and creativity together to generate your deepest work.